Thanks everyone. Welcome to another lunchtime event here at Torch. My name's Vicky and I run Torch. Um, we would usually have our wonderful director here, who is the new uh, Professor Philip Bullock. I'm afraid he has an injury, so has actually had to go for an appointment. But it is my absolute pleasure to have the chance to welcome you all and thank you all for coming, and particularly to briefly introduce our wonderful speakers here today. Um, so this lunchtime seminar is called Autonomy, Community and Destiny, Reimagining Disability. Um, and this wonderful panel has been brought together. Um, Marie Tidball, who is actually one of our very own Knowledge Exchange Fellows here. She's also, and there's a long list of titles, <laughs> and the founding director and coordinator of the Oxford University Disability Law and Policy Project, as well as the Oxford City's Mental Health Champion. And we are also really, really happy to welcome two excellent speakers, Dom Hyams, who is the Communications and Digital Director at Assist Me, and is also a freelance multimedia producer, and Liz Frude, who is a professor here at, of Egyptology at the Oriental Institute. Um, as I mentioned, today's lunchtime event uh, relates to the Disability and Curriculum Diversity Series, and is also part of um, a lot of work we're trying to support, facilitate and welcome people into related to our Humanities and Identities series. As part of that series, we're particularly supporting anything related to research identities on disability, <coughs> race, gender, um, anything to do with sexuality, poverty, class, religion, any kind of aspect and intersections of identity. So again, I always plea this at every event. If you have ideas, if you'd like to be involved, please do get in touch with us. And thank you to those who already have. Thank you. Um, all that's left for me to do is to say thank you very much to our speakers today and hand over to Marie. Thank you. Hello. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to be doing um, the second in our series, Disability and the Curriculum, here today. Um, and just to kind of give an overview of what's going to happen today, Professor Elizabeth Frood will speak on uh, the way her own acquired disability has had an impact on the reframing of how she does fieldwork and how that's led her to adapt the methodology she uses as an Egyptologist. Um, on entrepreneur, television presenter and editor of Powerless 100, Dom Hyams, will speak on the potential role of the Assist Me app and other assistive technology um, that, that he works with could have on revolutionising research, which not only makes fieldwork more accessible uh, for disabled people, but enables them as researchers to access important data which benefits academia more generally. And we're going to start with um, Dom, and it's really wonderful to have Dom here with us today. Uh, amongst the um, glistening array of things that he's um, done previously in the experience he brings to the table. As, as Vicky mentioned, he's the communications and digital director at Assist Me, which is a revolutionary app that aims to help people with disabilities to act more independently by connecting them with goods and services all over the world. He's also a freelance multimedia producer and editor-in-chief of the annual Power 100 Power List um, of Disability. He formerly worked at Sunset and Vine as an assistant producer working across their live and digital um, output, including London 2012 and Rio 2016 Paralympic Games for Channel 4, where he worked across the day's output as headlines producer. 
Um, as Vicky mentioned already, uh, Liz Frude uh, on my left is Associate Professor of Egyptology at the Faculty of Oriental Studies, um, University of Oxford, and her research interests um, include ancient Egyptian self-representation, including biographies, graffiti and visual representation, sacred space and landscape, social structures and organisation. Her research centres on the self-representation of Egyptian elites in the Old Kingdom through to the early first millennium BCE, with an emphasis on the late New Kingdom and Third Intermediate Period. This involves interpretive analysis of textual sources, particularly uh, non-royal monumental inscriptions and graffiti, and encompasses their broad and broader physical settings, including image, media, architectural space, and landscape. Since 2010, Liz has worked with the Centre um, Franco-Egyptian uh, today, the temples de Kanak, and Sorry. just got there uh, to edit and publish um, uh, graffiti and secondary inscriptions in the temple of um, Amon Re at Kanak. Uh, at, the mo at the moment, the, this project encompasses hieroglyphic, hier hieratic, and figural graffiti in two areas, selected in part because they incorporate relatively dense as well as diverse concentrations a small chapel in the north and a monumental gateway in the south. Her return to this work is the focus of her presentation and as, as we said at the beginning, particularly through uh, the way her methodological approaches have um, been adapted. So over to, to Dom um, for your talk. Thank you very much for having me, Marie. Um, I thought the best thing for me to do is talk about the stuff that I know most about and obviously that's assist me with disability access app and I really wanted this to be, I knew we were going to have some questions so in terms of the way what we do at Assist Me Links with Academia, um, I'd really love to get your input and your questions and your thoughts about how it could apply. And hopefully you'll see from what I say about Assist Me, um, it's quite adaptable. And so I want your experiences, your thoughts and ideas of how the technology can be used um, in situations that you think would be most useful. Um, so the story with Assist Me really starts uh, back in 2010 when uh, our two co-founders um, met and one was disabled and one was a sort of serial entrepreneur. One had an idea and one had a problem. Um, and that's kind of summarised there really. You know, we live in a world that obviously has been sort of built up around commercialisation and it's not necessarily the most inclusive of places. As a user going around your daily life, um, you come across all sorts of problems, and if you're disabled, quite a few of them might be to do with accessibility. So when we were sort of creating the SysMe app, we came across loads of people that said, well, I would go there, or I would do that, but I don't feel like I've got enough confidence to do it, I don't feel like I've got the tools to do it, um, and ultimately, they don't feel like they have, I suppose you'd say, the, the guarantee that the access will be ready and waiting for them when they turn up somewhere. From a service provider's point of view, um, we've also been sort of very well aware that different institutions, businesses, uh, corporations have said, well, you know, we're more than happy to accept anyone in. We want to offer the most... Um, inclusive environment we can but we don't necessarily know what someone needs we don't know um, when they're going to turn up 
and we want to be sure that we're basically utilising our resources effectively. Um, and so really, Assist Me was kind of born out of those two problems, as it were. So Assist Me is kind of the app which you can download from um, the Apple the Apple iTunes Store or the Android Play Store. Um, and it's a disability access app that allows a disabled user to turn up at a service provider with the assistance they need ready and waiting for them on their arrival. And then the other kind of side of it is my profile, which is actually the disabled user's personal information and data um, being conveyed to that institution very sort of securely on the terms of the user. So they choose what data they share. Um, and then the, obviously the service provider knows in advance who they are, what they need, um, and any other information or questions that the disabled user might have. Um, I'll hold my hands up now and say it is actually very simple. There's no real magic behind it. It is simply trying to satisfy the problem with the simplest solution we can that is accessible to as most people as possible. So as a company, you know, we kind of thought it was important to think about what our vision is. And I, I know I've touched on it already, but it is literally to empower disabled people as much as possible to be as included and integrated as they can be. Um, we want them to be able to access the world around them and be, you know, as kind of contributing as they possibly can be. As I said, it's a very simple app. So we only, we only need three steps here. Um, you literally request assistance through the app. Your data is sent across to the service provider. The service provider acknowledges the request. So the user um, basically is reassured that they know they're coming. And then they can see them a little bit like an Uber cab in reverse. They see the user coming towards them. So they get an alert when the user is imminently arriving, and that's what we call a geofence geo breach. So when the user is, say, 500 metres away, the service provider gets another alert to say, action stations, they're arriving. So in terms of kind of resourcing, it also means um, that the service provider doesn't have to constantly be waiting outside for someone to turn up between a window of an hour and um, they know exactly when pinpoint timings that they need to be ready and waiting to offer any assistance that a disabled user might might have in terms of the kind of features um of assist me obviously i won't go through them all in detail but one thing that was really important for us is to make sure that assist me is accessible to everyone so when we first created the app, um, we, were sh you know, we wanted to make sure that those accessibility features that are so brilliantly on smartphones nowadays um, can be properly utilised by the Assist Me app and users of the Assist Me app. So you can download the Assist Me app um, you know, if you've got visual impairment and if you've got a learning disability, there's no language in the app that might be you know, too difficult. Um, it's suitable for those uh, with colour blindness um, and obviously with the physicality if you struggle then obviously there are adaptive things in the app that mean it can work with just clicking or whatever that might be. Um, so we've had people of all shapes and sizes use the app, download the app and find it a very useful tool um, for them. 
So in terms of the, the, the other side of it, so the, the service provider side, we call it, but that could be anywhere that wants to be able to offer this assistance. They simply have a web uh, portal that they log into, which is just a web link. You, you sign in, you can be staying, you know, you can stay signed in once you've done that. And then you, it's literally just, as long as you've got an internet connection, you're in. There's no extra hardware or anything like that. So it's literally a mobile phone and a web connection to the service provider, and that's all it is. Um, in terms of the benefits, I know we've kind of sort of touched on these, but really it's about enabling and empowering that user to be able to access sort of venues in their near locality quickly, easily, and with the reassurance that they're going to be accessible for them. Um, there's the ability to have a sort of two-way real-time chat functionality in the app. So, you know, if there's something that you maybe don't want to say in person or you'll struggle to say in person, um, you can ask that question through the app. You know, so let's just say someone wanted to know where the loo was, uh, but they didn't want to have to ask when they turned up somewhere for the first time. Um, they could just ask that question through the app. And then obviously the service provider on the other end has a similar chat box that they can reply. Also, it means that maybe you're maybe intimidated by going somewhere without certain answers and struggle to find those online or anything like that, you can just ask a question and not even request the assistance part. So it's a tool that enables that two-way engagement um, as well as the active assistance that kind of is the secondary part of the app. Um, and most importantly, really, this is kind of proactive assistance, not reactive. Um, some of the applications for how we are using Assist Me more prominently um, is kind of rail, uh, aviation, and petrol stations. And all three of those at the moment don't offer the best service to disabled users because the assistance only starts once you've turned up. And so a petrol station, we're still in a situation where disabled people are turning up, even encouraged to sound their horn. Um, and once they've sounded their horn and alerted, hey, hey, I'm disabled, only then are they getting the assistance they need. Um, what you're doing with Assist Me and what we're working with with various petrol stations at the moment is creating a system where that petrol station knows you're coming in advance of you turning up. They're ready and waiting on the forecourt um, for your arrival. You fill up with fuel and you're paying through the app and then you're driving off. So you don't have to give your card to anyone for them to use your card and tell them the PIN number. Um, you're not having to sound your horn and cause a, a fuss. Similarly, with aviation, um, we're working on, with the kind of my profile side of it, that can be expanded um, to include information about particular sectors. So with aviation, for example, I could give information about my wheelchair um, so they know about how heavy it is with dimensions. And um, so if there are any problems, they know well in advance. Um, just the other week, actually, I flew to Zurich and uh, it wasn't effectively communicated that my powered wheelchair um, needed to come up to the aircraft in a high loader when I landed. And uh, instead it went to the terminal on a baggage trolley, wasn't secured properly, fell off the baggage trolley, 21,000 pound wheelchair broken. And so this is a temporary one that I'm using today. And with Assist Me, you know, functioning in Zurich Airport, if it had been there, it would have been a case of saying the wheelchair must go up to the aircraft on landing. That information would have, you know, 
already gone to Zurich, and then I would have already got confirmation that they're ready and waiting to do that on my arrival there. Um, so it's about that reassurance. It's about making those small adaptions that really um, can change the situation for a disabled user and ultimately enabling them to do things that otherwise they wouldn't be able to do. In terms of kind of, I, I was debating putting this slide in because um, it's, you know, a business slide technically, uh, but the kind of, the big stats there about how much money the disabled sort of population spends, um, you know, what we call the purple pound, um, the middle stat, 249 billion with associated families, that's, that's money that disabled people are spending in the economy that they could choose to spend somewhere else. So I could go to Pizza Express or I could go to Nando's, but I'm probably going to go to the one that is most accessible to me. Um, and so are the people, my friends and family that I'm with. Um, so this is, as we have this ageing population and things like that, this only becomes more and more important. Um, and, yeah, as such, institutions and service providers are having to pay more attention to it and are having to realise that actually, you know, roughly one in five people have some kind of disability and so it's very important to start making those adaptions um, to make them included. Also, another stat that is a kind of an indicator of how we're moving with technology, 82%, if not more now, this is a stat that I actually put in last year, sorry, academics, um, I'll find an updated one, 82% of uh, disabled individuals have access to a smartphone, um, and that's inclusive of the elderly now. Um, you know, we're becoming far more, you know, digitally engaged, and as the older, you know, as we all grow up, and we've grown up with technology, um, that's only going to go, you know, up and up. We at AssistMe are also obviously looking at ways that we can work with the dis uh, digitally disengaged as well. So you might not want to use AssistMe through a smartphone, but you might want to send a text message and that same data go across to the service provider in advance of you turning up. So it's our duty as well to make sure that we're trying to cater for all and that's and that's what we're doing especially with those kind of minorities that still might not be able to use um, technology that that easily in terms of our clients we as i kind of touched upon we work in all different areas um we work in a lot of disability organizations but we also kind of work with extra services and um, so if you go up and down the motorways um you can turn up at an extra services and use assist me um, so they'll if you need help out the car or if you need something brought to you in the service station they'll help you with that if you need the toilet unlocking anything like that um, we also have uh, a pilot in Coventry so we decided that a good way of trying to build um, assist me service providers was to actually look at locality and so in Coventry we've used that as a kind of test bed and we've got over 60 service providers all in the commentary area um, essentially to make the city centre as accessible and inclusive as possible so you can go from the council buildings to the library to the bars to the theatre and you can use assist me wherever you're going and we've been working with the council to do that and it's been you know a really brilliant project to be a part of and it shows how know well that this technology can actually change people's lives um, and empower them to, to, to do more.
I thought, you know, that's kind of the end of what I wanted to say. Um, I'm going to be around for a little while, obviously. If anyone wanted help seeing how it works, um, the application, or specific um, sort of questions about whether somewhere that you knew um, could benefit from Assist Me, then I'd be more than happy to discuss anything you've got. Obviously, with regard to um, academia and how it could be most suitable for you guys, um, I'm really looking forward to hearing your questions and your thoughts on that. And again, thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Well, thanks very much, Dom. I'm kind of buzzing with excitement now with all the different ideas about how this could be put to use. I'm also incredibly jealous that Coventry City Council got there first. Yes. <laughs> so we might have to um, have a chat about that afterwards. Um, <laughs> uh, rubs their hands um, with a cunning plan. Um, so, uh, but in terms of the relevance and opportunities for academia, I think it's huge. Um, I mean, just in terms of thinking about, uh, we have people here today from our student support services and this could be a hugely exciting opportunity for um, disabled students at the university in terms of connecting them with the right support be that at their library be that at, at, at colleges uh, and other um, uh, institutions here like our museums I think also there's a really fantastic opportunity for this to inform uh, and develop um, the methodologies used by both researchers with disabilities and um, people who are doing work alongside um, people with uh, disabilities as participants. Um, and that's something perhaps we'll come back to later and connect rather nicely to um, Liz's talk. Because of technical issues, we're doing a team presentation. <laughs> technical issues related actually to my hands, so just shows how um, difficult these things are to manage. Thank you very much, Marie, um, for the invitation to be a part of this seminar series. Um, it's really, really exciting. And um, I'm just going to be idea bouncing here. I'm really just at the start of things and with rethinking and reframing my work. Um, and it felt really important to me to start with place before I talked about the body in place. So this is a view of the Amun Temple at Karnak on the east bank of the Nile in ancient Thebes, which is now the city of Luxor. And this is where, as Marie said, I've been working since 2010. And it's kind of thought-provoking. I didn't think about this until this morning, that the first image that I use to open my presentation is a superhuman one. And it's also one that is almost entirely devoid of people. I've emptied out the human beings here. Um, and so it's, it's quite thought-provoking that I've chosen this image. And now I'm going to try and put one person back in, that's me, and a number of others. So now let's talk about this body. So um, this is a poster that was part of the Gaps Between exhibition that Torch ran earlier this year that I was very proud to be a part of and was particularly the brainchild of, of Vicky McGuinness. Um, and if we go to the close-up, this, um, this is the photograph itself. And um, it felt it's useful for me because it reminds me of the realities of this. So I had sepsis two years ago, just over two years ago, went into septic shock, lost my legs below the knee, lost 
the use of my hands. Um, my right hand, which is most prominent in the picture, is my meat hook. It's basically just a hook. And I have a little bit of mobility with this hand. Very little feeling in either hand. Um, and that's just the obvious stuff. Um, and it's the stuff that's most relevant to my work. So where do I go from here? Well, I'm going to begin with a quote. And it's a quote by the philosopher Sarah Ahmed talking about her 2006 book, Queer Phenomenology. And she says, when we are at home in the world, or when the world has been built to accommodate us, it tends to recede, becoming background. We know where we are, we know how to find things. Orientation is often the experience of not having a crisis about orientation. But when things move around, or you enter a world not built to accommodate you, things become strange, slant-wise, queer even. To question a world, or when the world becomes something you question, you proceed from a sense of being thrown. When things get thrown in the air, who knows what can happen. So I have been completely thrown in every possible way by this. And everything for me is now slant-wise queer even. And what I'm going to talk today um, about today is my field work. And I have to preface this by saying that I have not been back to Egypt yet. Um, I'm hoping to go in the spring. Um, so what I'm talking about now is, is how I'm thinking about how I might reframe my project. So this is in part fantasy and exploration, and this is where your ideas would be awesome. Um, so this is what I do. I scramble around the Temple of Karnak looking for graffiti. And I work in collaboration with the French Egyptian Centre for the study of the temples in Karnak, much easier to say in English. Sorry, <laughs> giving you the French. <laughs> and together with um, a small team, um, particularly Chiara Salvador, who is holding the ladder down here and is an audience over there. Um, the graffiti we work on range in date from about 1400 BC to about 700 some of the pictorial stuff is later. Um, and it's textural and hieroglyphs and the cursive form of hieroglyphs and, in hier and it's pictorial as well. So stepping back from that image, this is the gateway that we had the ladder up against. It's a, it's a massive pylon gateway in Karnak and this is one of our major projects. It's covered in graffiti. So one of my aims when I began this project was to assess access. Who could go where and why? So that's what I mean when, you know, this is what I mean when I say it's not just my body this project is trying to put back in the temple now, it's many others. Um, and we've been aiming to re-people Karnak to make it bustle again. Graffiti mark movement through space in ways that's very different from that governed by the grand architecture here or by the official primary decoration on these walls. And seeing it slant-wise, underscores this, these problems and ideas of access way more now than it did before. I have always been part of that privileged elite group that takes access for granted, unlike most people in Egypt, until now. And of course, because this has suddenly been complicated for me, I'm starting to question a lot of things about that privilege. So, um, there's, there are practical issues of mobility and access to, to overcome or work around them. Um, this is what I really want on the far side, is telescopic or spring legs would be a great start. Come on, prosthetists. 
come on, come on, prosthetics designers, surely Inspector Gadget is possible. Um, so, you know, this is how I can adapt the possibilities from my body and my fantasy world of how my body could be adapted for this environment. This logo here, on the, on the other side, I have to think about the environment itself. And this logo is, the, is, the, is for the Accessible Egypt campaign, um, initiated by Jane Akshar and Joanne Stables, who are two English people working in Luxor and living in Luxor. And their campaign has been focused largely around foreign tourism, um, which is a productive place to start. Um, but they've been developing collaborations with local Egyptian organizations that are campaigning for accessibility more broadly, particularly Helm, and I've put their homepage up there. That means dream in Arabic. Um, interestingly, President Sisi has declared 2018 the year of the disabled in Egypt. And all sorts of questions about attitudes, perceptions, values, community and access tumble out of this uh, alongside all of these projects. I have been very, very much on the edges of this, watching from afar, um, but it's one area I hope to engage with as I move forward. But talking about the graffiti themselves, quite apart from my mobility, there are these hands of mine, damn it, recording by drawing is interpreting and understanding, and that's what I've been doing, and that's what I don't know that I'll be able to do anymore. So reframing all of this, to me, seems to involve two interwoven strands, my collaborative community um, and the digital technologies, including photography. These involve varying degrees of dependence, which is very challenging for me, and significant finance. I am a much more expensive prospect now than I was before. But I'm going to proceed from this point pretending that finance is an issue, isn't an issue. So, you know, we're just maintaining the fantasy that I'm not, you know, these things don't matter. They do know that I'm thinking about it, but let's, let's proceed forward like it's not an issue. So we have been testing different photographic techniques in Karnak. We'd already started doing this. This is reflective transformation imaging, which creates 3D models of the surface. Very, very effective tool for the graffiti. It means we can relight photographs on the computer back in the office. Um, and this has, been, this has been very useful. Um, I just need to find a photographer to continue this project with me. Anyone knows any photographers that want to come and work in Egypt, let me know. Um, and what we've done here is part of a, um, a much larger photographic and computer vision project at Karnak. But none of these wider projects have been working at the resolution of the graffiti. So we have our sort of limited testing that we did with, with this work, and then these much larger projects. We need to try and bring them together somehow, moving to the creation of digital environments. So um, there have been some really remarkable projects in Egyptology that have been playing with these ideas and really exploring these ideas about the creation of digital environments and making those environments completely accessible. The creators of this project, um, and hopefully you can see that this is a digital model and there are little Egyptian people walking through the, the architecture in front of the pyramids there. Um, so they have avatars and you can actually fly through the site and they'll have like little human beings walking through. Very, very interesting recreation. And they've published very useful reflexive analyses of the implications for research of, of 3D models. And one of the words that keep, kept coming up in these reflexive commentaries is accessibility. 
And although it is very, very clear that by accessibility they're not thinking about people like me, um, it's really interesting to think about how this sort of technology does open up possibilities for people like me. Um, 3D models are often seen as ways of pitching for funding, so they're, they're glamorous, um, they attract non-specialists, which is great, um, they're seen as teaching tools, but their implications for research, fine scholarship, has been often actively criticised for being, for example, misleading. Um, or disregarded as showboating. And that's something, that's a criticism I've come across so many times in conversations with people. Oh, 3D models here, yeah, they look really cool, but it's just showboating. But what if, and I think about this really selfishly, what if we could create a 3D model of this staircase inside that massive gateway? And then I could go back in and look at the graffiti like this that are on the walls of that staircase without risk. But it can't just be about accessibility for one scholar, much as I would really like it to be. Can we play that video? Um, so there has been 3D modeling of, of architecture at Karnak, um, and hopefully, if we can get it going, this will give you a sense of this. Um, this 3D modeling has been presented um, as a teaching tool about architecture and space, um, and it's a very kind of effective teaching tool if it's gonna, yeah, so you can get the sense of kind of moving through the space. One of the criticisms of the creation of 3D models is that it creates a utopia, and that utopia is sanitized, certainly, westernized, interesting, vision of the ancient world. And you can see here that the creators of this have tried to be as neutral as possible. They don't have avatars, they don't have people wandering around, they don't even have any decoration. Um, but just so we can think about the effects of architecture. But it does promote that utopian sense of, of unreality or, or non-reality. And I have to say that I'm guilty of sanitizing too. So, um, go to my next, my final slide. Um, much of my early work on the ancient graffiti has stressed its legitimacy. I have seen them as part of accepted practice within temples, but everything about this is slantwise for me now. Graffiti, graffiti were probably always marginal, edgy. And how exciting would it be to take those clean, shiny digital models and scrawl all over them? It would be shocking and it would be disturbing for us as viewers. It doesn't fit our idea of Egyptian temple space. It would throw our expectations. And I think that would tell us a lot more, begin to tell us a lot more about ancient, access, uh, ancient experience, as well as access and movement and all of these things. So here is just a little bit of what I'm throwing around. Who knows what's going to happen? Thank you. So that was truly enthralling and, it, and what wonderful synergy bringing the two speakers together uh, in the space here today.